0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And so it
1: it like, if anything, the way I'm describing it probably sounds like a really annoying person. And maybe, (laughs) maybe that's also true that like people that are likable um, are also a little bit blendy. And yeah. I think that's that's inherently the problem, and and that's when I look back at like the social hierarchies of high school, for example. That is uh-huh. that is the ultimate goal. Like you want to blend in. I wanted to blend in. I didn't want to stand out, and it took me actually blending in to be like, oh fuck this noise. Like I want to stand <laughs> out. Like this is boring. Like what? I, th- I all this work to get to the top, and now I'm like, wait a minute.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
3: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, UnitedHealthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder
4: of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed
3: they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
4: Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it, Bombus absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. big comfort for everyone. Go to bombuscom slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your
2: business is always at your fingertips. Margo, welcome to the unmistakable creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So as I was saying, uh, just before we hit record, uh, you're one of a long line of people that Sarah Peck has sent our way uh, all of who have been phenomenal. So no pressure at all on you. (laughs) Uh, But before we get into your work, uh, I want to start, particularly given the nature of your work, by asking you what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made uh, with your life and your career?
1: You know, it was less which one I was a part of and more the one I wanted to be of that led, like, had an impact. And I would argue that impact was a little bit negative. Um, I definitely wanted to be cool. (laughs) And and, um, my, I don't know, genetics or natural disposition didn't exactly allow for that. But it got me really interested in studying human behavior. So you could argue that it sort of was the foundation for how we got to here. uh, Mm -hmm. Because I would literally sit in class and I remember like studying the cool table being like, why was that joke funny? Um, Uh, Like trying to understand how people interacted with each other. Um, to try and gauge maybe how I was supposed to act or what I was allowed to say or not say and, like, really just understand the rules because it felt like I missed that day in kindergarten where they taught you how to be (laughs) likable. And what I did, you know, what I was lacking at the time was, like, confidence um, Uh and, like, permission to be myself because the truth was I had some really good friends, but they were at a different school. And so um, those were great friends, but in the new context of, like, high school... Um, it was really strange for me, really strange for me. It took me probably another decade before I finally, I remember even like coming out to my husband at one point being like, I'm a really big nerd. And he's like, I, I know, sweetheart. (laughs) 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 But, uh, yes, go ahead. Sorry.
2: How old are you when you had the realization that you weren't cool? Uh, I only, this is one of those things that to me, it jogs a memory of, you know, getting into seventh grade, realizing that there are popular kids and unpopular kids. And this is fresh on my mind because I was with a friend uh, in College Station, Texas. And this guy was actually one of the cool kids. And for some strange reason, despite being sixth, seventh, and eighth grade together, we we had never actually met, only knew of each other peripherally. And then randomly on the streets of Tamarindo, Costa Rica, I was wearing a Texas A&M shirt. He saw it and he's like, where'd you get that shirt? And it turns out that we had gone to sixth, seventh, and eighth grade together. And then we became friends. Oh my God. Uh, but you know, we were, I was talking to him about the, the whole experience. I said, yeah, I remember very distinctly this moment when a kid that I was friends with from fifth through sixth grade walked up to me, uh, I think the first probably two weeks of school in seventh grade, and just said, I don't want to be friends anymore. I knew exactly why he didn't want to be friends. It was because I wasn't cool. So how old were you when you realized that?
1: Wow. Uh, I was, it was between eighth and ninth grade. Like, I was a little bit older. Like I always knew... Um, I was quirky, but it was it was always a fun part of my friendship group. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was around the time I became aware of boys that I was like, I like <laughs> cute boys and I would like them to like me back. And uh-huh. that that sort of consumed all of my thoughts. Um, but I, I have I also have a distinct memory, and it was when I had a few of my new friends over from this new school. And I had, it was back when we still had like VHS and I had recorded a show on the Disney Channel. And I remember being like, oh, this show is so great. We should watch it. And they like gave me these looks like, you still watch the Disney Channel? And I'm sitting there being like, well, do you not? like? Well, I wish I had the confidence to have been like, do you not? Like, really? This show is great. And instead, I was mortified and I was like, oh, we're not doing that here. Okay. Because uh-huh. um, I was the nerdy kid in, but like in the, in the funny way, in um, elementary and uh, middle school, I was really into environmentalism and like saving the planet. And I didn't really care what anyone thought. Like I was the one who campaigned for an earth day and everyone liked it because they got a half day off school. And I (laughs) thought that I was a pioneer for social change and justice. Uh Um, And I don't, I don't think I got a self-consciousness of that until my friends sort of told me it was weird. And they always let me know like, that's a weird shirt. You shouldn't wear that. It's like, Oh, okay. Thanks for letting me know (laughs) as if they were doing me a favor.
2: Well, it's funny because I think that, uh, you know, we go through adult life or like we go through sort of adolescence and we become more and more self-conscious. We spend more and more time trying to fit in. And the funny thing is you get in the real world and what gets rewarded is standing out. And (laughs) it's it's a a sort of strange paradox. I I wonder from your own experience of having gone through this. uh, One, do you have siblings? I do. I have a
1: younger sister and she was naturally cool.
2: Okay. So then likewise, I I can relate. Really? yeah, absolutely. That's why I asked. I, I kind of had a feeling about this. So uh, one, like, how is it different for your sister than it was for you? My sister is very much the same way. I realized my sister was actually cool and popular when I came home from Christmas, uh, one of my years in college. And oh no, it was her first year in college. She came from Berkeley. we were both home for Christmas. We went to the mall. We couldn't get more than 10 feet without her running into somebody she knew. And I was like, okay, you were definitely way cooler in high school than me. So I I wonder what is the difference, you know, uh, you think based on the age gap or, or, you know, I feel like the older child always gets screwed when it comes to this.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I hear stories where the older child is the cool one and the younger one has to be in their wake. And I feel like I didn't get that. It was, (laughs) it was more, um, you know, she was athletic. I was not. So I think already that sets you up to have like a cool group of friends and be known at, like you have sort of a set tribe. And she was really pretty. And I, um, not that I am not pretty, but it took me a while to grow into my features, if you will. Um, I went through a very, very awkward phase in middle school and um, it it built character. We'll just say that. Mm. Um, and I think that has something to do with it because it's like base emotions that are playing off of things in high school. So she had... She was predisposed in many ways for that. I also think there were some things about like who our parents' friends were and their kids. Because there are a lot of friends that you just uh, inherit, you don't make at that age. And um, my friends at that time, there was like an age gap, which in the high school and middle school and elementary school world like makes a really big difference. Whereas for my sister, they were all the same year. Mm-hmm. And so I think she went in with like a familiarity of knowing people already and having yeah. these friendships. Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure if we asked her, her take would be very different. But like <laughs> kids, kids literally fought over sitting with her. Wow! And I was like, yeah, never had that problem. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. So uh, as the person who, you know, came to this profound realization that you were uncool and wanted to understand this, I, the, before we get into like the specifics and details of how you end up arriving to at making a career out of this, I wonder what you would tell parents who are listening to this, particularly parents who have kids who are at that age, because, uh, I don't remember, I, I think it might've been just somebody who was talking to it. I, I remember, you know, suddenly you just, as a seventh <laughs> grader, you turn into like this demon spawn of a person and your parents are the most awful people on the planet because they're salting your game, even though you don't have any.
1: Right, right. Uh,
2: and so I wonder what you would say to parents who are listening based on your experience. Yeah.
1: With this. I mean, I'm a parent, so I think about this all the time and I work really hard at making sure my daughter feels accepted for who she is. And she is not even one year old yet. Like this is something that is on my mind now because I, I wonder, I mean, my parents were always really good at positive reinforcement. I don't think they did anything particularly wrong, but I do think Mm -hmm. that, um, there are places where my strengths or weirdness could have been seen as cool, um, Mm -hmm. in my home life, or I could have invested in them a little more instead of it being a little ostracized. It's like, that's the thing Margo's into, um, I think about that with with how I want to talk to and raise my daughter on the things that she's excited about, and not not breed a self consciousness about it into her. And I, I don't know if it's a particular thing of if it's interests um, or just her general disposition. I just think the like the language we use to talk to our children about who they are. Um, mm-hmm. I'll give you a really silly example, but there's something that people say a lot when they see like a video of my daughter and she's like pulling herself up and smiling. And they'll say something like, oh, look at her. She's so proud of herself. And it's little things like that where I'm like, that is condescending. Like, why <laughs> don't we celebrate people that are excited about the things that they're doing? And uh. like, also, it's really cool. Like a month ago, she couldn't move. And now she can move. Um, yeah. So why, why are we patronizing? You know, there's little things in the tone that start now that uh-huh. I think we can start building an awareness of and start, uh, nipping in the bud, uh, in order to build this. But, you know, there's also an argument to be made that we couldn't, like, I couldn't be here sitting here having this conversation with you if I hadn't gone through those things. Like it's possible I'm going to have the most self-confident daughter who has a totally separate set of issues. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Exactly. (laughs) Well, it's funny because having, you know, done all of this work, uh, having interviewed 700 people and read enough self-help books, uh, to open up a therapy practice, like, I think I, I'm under the delusion. There are people who are raised with, you know, these parents who raise them with this perfect subconscious programming who are completely confident and like walk through life with no problems. Uh, but then you actually talk to people and it turns out to be anything but true.
1: Listen, I hope it's true. And I really wish that I had that power over my kid. <laughs> um, but, and I certainly like, I definitely feel that way when I think about my upbringing, like I would love to blame my parents for everything, but at a certain point, like I, I look at my kid and I'm like, she came out like that. Like, she's not even one yet. And there are parts of her personality where I'm like, I didn't make that. That's not I me. Mean. Like, for example, she's really chill. I don't have a chill boat in my body. I don't know where she got that from. <laughs> like, I, I, I would love to think that I have a chill household, but you're hearing how I speak. This is me, normal and calm. Like, I don't have a chill Like option, Um, and here she is, just like whatever. So you know, there are certain. It's that intersection. You know, I my responsibility is to create the container and the environment so that she can thrive, um, Mm -hmm. and also allow her to fail in a way that's healthy. Um, And my husband and I like to joke that we're gonna fuck her up in our own special way.
2: Yeah, well, I think that seems common to (laughs) all. Yeah, uh, so I, I had this piece that uh, ended up going viral on Medium uh, like sometime in, in January last year, titled What We Should Have Learned in School But Never Did. Mm. And one of the things I talked about was managing psychology and self worth. And, you know, given your perspective and your background, I wonder, one, why do you think we don't teach these things in school? And, it's funny because I thought that was going to be the subject of my next book, but that ended up kind of just not happening. But one of the things I'd always wondered was, you know, okay, does the prettiest girl in school know she's the prettiest girl in school? Did she see herself that way?
1: There? Yeah. Yeah. So I,
2: I wonder, you know, why we aren't teaching kids about self-esteem in school because we base so much of our self-worth on things we don't control, like other people's opinions.
1: Yes. Well, we have to go back and ask the question, what is school for? There yeah. is a really, really great video from Seth Godin on on this topic. Um, and if you go back and look at why we created school, it was to create compliance. It was back when we needed a place to put our kids when we couldn't put them in factories anymore. Um, and then it was it was actually a rich like status thing. We wanted to get you well versed. I mean, this is this is why the conversation on higher education always so funny when people are like, "It doesn't teach you skills that are practical." Like, it wasn't built to. It was built to be a place to put your money and look impressive at dinner parties, um, and so when you think about, are we teaching the right things and the practical things at school? Like, no, it wasn't built for that. First of all, um, there's a lot of skills missing. There's personal finance missing. There is basic human physiology missing. There's psychology missing. There is, you know, how to run a household. Um, you know, there are a lot of, like how to choose a mate, like things that are a much bigger impact on your life. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think we knew how to think about intelligence in the right way either. I mean, there's nine different types of intelligence, and we focus on like one or two as indicators for success. And it's only now that we're seeing the data coming back saying, you know, these are not really good predictors of later success in life. Like maybe we should listen to Angela Duckworth and like look at grit instead. Um, And so that's starting to be a conversation. But um, I I also think that we sincerely didn't know. Like I think that was part of the problem is that um, for most of Human history, we sort of dismissed these things as fluffy. Certainly during the Industrial Revolution, um, we were looking more at scale and at numbers and at things that you could touch that were practical. I think this is an evolution in the way that we're thinking about human beings and the way we're thinking about what matters in life and self actualization and living a good life. Like these were not topics that that really were in the zeitgeist in the way that they are now. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a lot of shame around talking about these things. I think today now we sort of know that self-worth and confidence and grit and all these things are at the root of everything. And if you're missing these things, then like you're up shit creek without a paddle. I mean, your life is going to be very difficult for different reasons. Um, yeah. but we never knew to pay attention to that.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that to me, uh, we're in an interesting sort of uh conundrum because you have, you know, exactly what you said, like an awareness about these things that we've never had before. And at the same time, you have that coupled with a world of social media where, you know, teenagers' self-worth is at an all-time low because they're constantly comparing themselves. Like when I had Cal Newport here, he said the the data on this is terrifying. He said he's never, he said, if you look at the graphs in terms of mental health issues for the generation that's in high school now, particularly teenage girls, he said, you know, from the time smartphones and social media became prevalent in our lives, there's a massive spike And you know incidences of uh, hospital check ins for self harm, depression, anxiety. So I wonder, you know, when you think about that, like, what do you, how do you, how do you resolve those two paradoxes together? You know, we have this awareness that we've never had before, and at the same time, on top of that awareness, you have this.
1: Yeah, there's a systemic part of this that we have to fix that I don't think has anything to do with us and has to do with regulation and this uncharted territory of what is social media. What is internet media? Right now, it is the Wild West. And I mean, I don't know if you watched any of the um, uh, House hearings when uh, Mark Zuckerberg was there. But I mean, the questions were comical. Yeah. There was a lack of media literacy from lawmakers in our country. And so if you have people who don't understand the basic mechanics of how the internet works and what the democratization of information has done and how people are actually using these tools, Um, we, that's, you know, problem number one. Um, and then, and and so I think that is going to solve itself over time. Um, as, as these things, as they normalize, the second part of the conversation is how do we indoctrinate self-awareness? And, uh, that part I think is something that podcasts like this can do. I think platforms like mine can do. I think things like Sarah can do, like where we are. Uh, raising aware, we're giving people the language to have this conversation because I think for, um, decades, we didn't know how to talk about this. And, And you hear about it in stories when people say like, Oh, I didn't know how to talk to my son. I saw he was struggling with this, but I really didn't know how. And like, we're actually really uncomfortable with emotions. Like as a society, we don't know how to deal with them. And we don't think of feelings as data. We think of feelings as something weak and soft that you should put over there. And we talk about, um even like the narratives in our culture about success and virtue um they sound a lot like like bad stoicism <laughs> like mm-hmm. not the kind where you you have a mindfulness about things um yeah. but the kind where it's like i hold it all in and then one mm-hmm. day i fucking explode like that's actually really really bad and we probably shouldn't keep perpetuating that um yeah. as a as a virtue but um i do think one of the solutions is um Having those conversations with your friends. Like, one of the things I love living in the, like, about living in the Northeast that's different from, I'm from Texas originally, is that everyone here has a therapist. And so you talk about your therapist the same way you talk about, like, oh, I was walking my dog. It's like, oh, so my therapist was saying the same thing. Like, it's (laughs) dropped in casual conversation, like, it's no big deal. And guess what happens as a result? There's no freaking stigma up here. No one, like, sits down and is like, I really think I need therapy. Instead, what you get is like, it's the same. You get like questions the way someone would ask like, Oh, do you have like a, a wax lady? Like I'm, I'm looking for a therapist. Do you have a good recommendation? Right. Like I want to get to that level where we're talking about self-worth and confidence and courage and vulnerability and feelings where we yeah. normalize all these things instead of constantly stigmatize them and pretend not to have them. Because that, that leads back to your question on does the popular girl know she's popular? Um, like if we felt comfortable, at 11 years old to uh-huh. ask our parents that question or even vocalize it. Cause I promised you at my, like me at 11, I wouldn't have even known that there was a safe place to have this conversation or that I needed to have it at all. Um, yeah. you know, you get a lot of inspirational stuff, but you don't get, you know, like believe in yourself, but you don't get the brass tasks of like, but are you guys acknowledging that like in this room you're telling me to believe in myself in there's like clicks happening around me and I'm, so focused on what my hair looks like i'm actually not listening to you um, <laughs> <laughs> that's reality though
2: right it is uh well we're in texas because uh, we we have that in common like we apparently went through this whole thing at the same time uh no in right. the same place i one part of me is like oh i wonder if that has something to do with texas but uh we're in texas in houston what about you okay college station
1: <laughs> ah nice oh and um, yeah i wasn't allowed to fly there we were a youtube family <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, it, well, it's funny. I, I do wonder at, at moments, you know, where I was. I was telling one of my friends. I said, you know, like you, you go to a place like College Station, and, and some of that you kind of see. It was funny because we left right after ninth grade, and in my mind, there are all these blanks, like question, unanswered questions. So yeah. when I sat down with my friend, I was like, yes, yeah, so is this person still attractive? Like, are they as attractive as I remember them being in seventh grade? It was pretty hilarious to hear. Uh, and so I wonder even, you know, like what role being in a place like Texas would play in all that?
1: Yeah, I think about that all the time. I mean, Houston is actually very metropolitan. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's it's any place where you feel um, those feelings of disconnection. And yeah. I, I don't think that that's unique to Texas. I think maybe it's unique to suburb life. But like, if you're a kid in a school, you're going to feel secluded. Um I'm trying to think if there's any, I mean, I would love to blame, blame Texas, but I also know a lot of well-adjusted people who went through (laughs) um, that I'm using as counter examples. So I can't quite go there, but, um, but yeah, culture definitely has part, uh, has something to do with it. Um, a, a lot to do with it, I would say, but I think you can cultivate that in your own tribal way, like who you choose to be around and spend your time with can actually change that feeling of isolation.
2: Well, it's funny because I think the reason that that came up in my mind is, you know, when I I was in College Station for the first time in 25 years, uh, sometime last week to go speak to a group of MBA students. And when we were there in 1986, I was like one of two Indian kids in the whole school. Like to be an Indian kid in a predominantly white town, you're constantly self-conscious about your ethnicity so much so that one year I didn't invite my parents to open house because I was embarrassed by their accents. Mm -hmm.
1: I get that, and you know what's funny is I. So my mom's Israeli, but um, she moved to to Texas to Huntsville uh, when she was fourteen and didn't speak a word of English. Um, wow! But the way she talks about it is actually very positive, and I think because of some choice like deliberate choices her parents made about indoctrinating themselves in the community um, mm-hmm. and like making sure everyone was friends with her. Um, yeah. But I, I felt that self-consciousness, even though like I'm white and I can, I can definitely blend, but being Jewish with a, with a mom, like I, I'm half first generation American and then half like my dad's American. Um, uh-huh. But that feeling of otherness is definitely real in the South. <laughs> That's very real.
2: Yeah, no. And it's funny because now as an adult, I, like, <laughs> I remember walking in there and I'm like, In my mind, that that narrative had changed from, oh, I'm an Indian prisoner, predominantly white town, to, hey, I'm exotic as fuck here. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know?
1: Well, it's also interesting when those things become an asset. Because I remember when kids used to ask me, like, oh, you're Jewish. And what it was code for is, who are your friends? And I Uh remember not wanting to be, like, labeled Jewish because I didn't want people to think I was only friends with, like, those three people. And that they that I couldn't be one of them, like the cool kids, and mm-hmm. um and then I remember it's switching like in college and post college where I like wore my Jewishness everywhere. I was like, no, I'm Jewish. I'm in this tribe. I'm one of them. Um and and I don't know if that is like in part developmental, um or different experiences you have along the way, um or if the question genuinely changed. Like it no longer felt so judgy and um, holding me in a box. It was like. And it, like, no one was by saying, are you Jewish was asking me like my feelings on God, for example, they were just trying to judge uh, me and put me in their box. And that's yeah. what fresh me rated me about
5: it. Hmm.
2: Well, I think we've been kind of dancing around the edges of it here. But uh, let's get into to your actual work. Uh, I mean, how do you get from Texas to the work that you do, uh, that was actually driven by this, you know, feeling of, of not being cool?
1: Sure. So I went to college in Atlanta. I wanted to get really far away from Texas. And I ended up applying to a school that didn't have a football team, which was like a huge deal. (laughs) Um, And ended up being justified with like, okay, well, then you can root for Texas. I'm like, all right. Um, But uh, I, I was a literature major. And at the end of school, like my dream was to work at CNN. And I discovered that there was a game being played around me. Um, that like you have to know people to get jobs, and this was like shocking to me because I thought it was a meritocracy. And I was like, well, if you all you have to do is get to know people, I can make this work um, because I had been studying people and how people interact forever. It took me about a year and a half to get the right contacts, um, but I finally got myself an internship at CNN, which is headquartered in Atlanta. And then I realized that that was where like news and media went to die, and I was so sad and sort of having this quarter life crisis of what I was going to do when I graduated. And at the time, um, had a lot of questions about, uh, human behavior and how do you get people to care? And I was also seeing a lot of friends of mine and people around me and also in the zeitgeist who uh, on paper had everything, but were struggling with depression and anxiety and addiction and eating disorders. And like, just this potpourri of problems. And, um, So I started applying for jobs in psychology labs because I was like, this is fascinating to me. And to me, literature was all about going into the mind of people and like studying humans. So it wasn't a big jump for me, but apparently to the outside world, going from the liberal arts to the sciences, is like a really big deal. And so this was one, like the first of many moves that I think felt very uncomfortable for everyone around me. And for me, it was just like, oh no, this, this feels like the logical next step. So I shifted into the sciences. I worked at a um, really renowned research lab at Emory University in their uh, medical school in the psychiatry department. And I was in charge of intake um, for uh, these depression studies. And I didn't know it at the time, but this was my first introduction to marketing and sales funnels. And for the next few years, my job was to get people with depression enrolled in our studies. But that meant that I needed to find a way to identify them and attract them and bring them in. Um, later, I found out that that's called conversion um, but, <laughs> and copywriting. But yeah. um, I, I was terrible at it. And um, I was very, very angry with the fact that we had these free solutions, like something that could genuinely make your life better. Um, and... The hard part was actually getting people to take a chance on themselves and do something in their own best interest. So I became sort of obsessed with this question of how do you get people to care and how do you get them to take action? And so I went to graduate school um, and that's how I ended up in New York. And I, um, I was actually studying uh, issues with affluence because I was, I was interested in that question of like, why do people who seem to have everything also seem to have such higher incidence of certain mental health issues? and um realized that I that the ivory tower wasn't the right fit for me. I wanted to to do research and uh discovered something called market research and sort of accidentally ended up in marketing on on my way. I started learning about how there's this area where you can study human behavior in real time and the field is called marketing. But no one ever told me about it because marketers and psychologists don't really talk to each other. And so I, uh, that was my next sort of jump. Um, and at that time, I had sort of been introduced to a lot of the, the work that I think you talk about in the podcast. Like the I drank the four-hour work week Kool-Aid. I um, started getting really into personal development. And I was just fascinated by this world. Um, ended up working at an uh, agency for a few years, a marketing agency as a strategist, and, uh, and then struck out on my own. Um, I ran my own consultancy for several years. And uh, and now I, I teach marketing and writing, um, and I, I help uh, creative entrepreneurs sort of punch their lizard brain in the face.
2: Mm. So I love this idea of, of how do you get people to care. Uh, I think to me, there's so many different angles that we could look at this from particularly when it comes to human behavior. So I, I want to look at it through a couple of different contexts, both in the personal and professional. Yes. So you you studied how to become effectively cool in a lot of ways and how to get people to care. Um, what did you notice about how that plays out in uh romantic relationships or, you know, uh members of the opposite sex with each other and how they interact? Like what did you learn about that?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. You mean like empirically from from my memory? Yeah, empirically
2: <laughs> yeah. or look, I'm just trying as I tell everybody, I'm just trying to battle my own demons and solve my own problems. Yeah. Or- Um, you know, the, you know, if somebody in the audience happens to benefit, that's a convenient, you know, that's a convenient. Well, I'll
1: I'll start here. There were a lot of things that I observed and I mimicked and I was able to do well. Like I figured out how to be likable. Um, and I figured out what, like how to make people interested in me. And, Mm -hmm. um, that didn't mean that those interactions were genuine. So I also found myself in situations where I was like, oh, I attracted this cute person with status, but I don't really like them. <laughs> mm. And and so it raised a whole new slew of questions, which was like authenticity in these interactions and and sh- like showing up as you while also leveraging the tools of likability. So yeah. like where is that intersection? Cuz I found that like where it led me and this is why it wasn't productive was I, I became extremely fake. Like uh-huh. I, I had relationships that weren't real, um, and I don't. I don't mean necessarily just rela- like romantic, but like friendships. Um, or I would pursue interests that and like hobbies that like I wasn't interested in. I was spending my time in things that I didn't necessarily enjoy, or I enjoyed a little, but not as much as I let on. Um, and I wasn't sincere about like what I needed and what like to Marie Kondo this what brought me joy. And (laughs) so I I think that um, you have to be careful with how you would advise someone to like increase your likability because there's a certain point where it's like, it's not always the best thing. Like maybe it's okay if that person who's actually a schmuck, but they're good looking, doesn't like you, you know, like maybe use the likability to like sleep with them for one night and then like don't like find someone else to marry.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Okay. Well, if you're going to tell us you know, how to use your likability to sleep with somebody for one night, as a guy, I would like to know that. <laughs> um. All joking aside, it's funny. Uh, I I would like to know that, not just for that purpose. But um, one thing that I I was thinking about as you said that, you know, I I did some work with a dating coach who was also a guest here on Unmistakable Creative. And one of the things that I had realized uh, from having done interviews was (laughs) that I had an exceptional ability to sit in a conversation and ask questions and get people to tell me things they probably have never told anybody. Uh, But I realized if I went into a date and did that, it wasn't entirely real. Mm, Why not? Because – so Todd Herman had a new book come out called The Alter Ego Effect recently. Yeah. And I realized that in a lot of ways, who I am behind this microphone is somewhat of an alter ego. Like, I'm a much better listener when I'm interviewing somebody than I am in a normal conversation. I'm well aware of that. Mm. Uh, and it's almost like this is a way to compensate for it. And so – uh, when I, when I hear you say that, I'm like, Oh, okay. So where's that line? Right. Cause I, I started to realize, I was like, okay, you know what? I can sit here and I cannot say a word. I can make somebody talk for 30 minutes and have them tell me their whole life story. Cause I know how to do that. Yeah. Um, because I've developed it as a skill and yet I'm like, okay, there's a little bit of, you know, sort of inauthenticity in that because on some level it's a performance.
1: Yeah. And you, and you also want to be off. You want to be with yeah. someone who like you want to be interviewed. Yeah. Yeah. We we all want someone to show interest in us, and it's, it's ironic because what I would have told you is like show interest in other people. Like it's a lot of things that work in romance are the same, like sales skills. Like right. get someone talking about themselves. Like uh, like get their confidence built. Listen to them. Um, mm-hmm. Make them think they're funny. Um, but like that's also not very nice if you're not <laughs> you know if you're not showing up genuinely, and it doesn't lead to a good relationship. Like right, you need to find someone who's asking you the questions and uh-huh. who is like obsessed with finding out more about like how you podcast and what do you do? And like, what is editing like? And are you really nervous before you start these? And how much feeding do you actually do? And like someone who maybe listens as well, if not better than you, maybe you need someone who's a counterpart because that's the thing. This is a part where, you know, we were talking earlier about self-awareness
5: mm-hmm.
1: really matters because if you don't know who you are, it's impossible to know what you need. and, mm-hmm. Like it, it, like there are so many different types of people in this world. And so it could be that the type of person you need to be around is the person who's a really good listener or someone who like piles, uh, like steam rolls over you in conversation. So you can just relax. <laughs> <laughs> like my, my husband, and I always joke about this because like, we are really, really different. And I sometimes think that that's like the best thing possible. Like I wouldn't, if I, if I had one of those checklists when I was younger, I never would have like come up with him. Um Yeah. And that's because we compliment so well. Like he, I am the one who's steamrolling him over conversation, and he listens. And it's in, in many ways, it's because he's on at his job all the time, so he can yeah. come home and like. And I and I also need that. I need someone to be like, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. I have more ideas. Let me tell you all the ideas.
2: So, well, I mean, so we kind of, you know, I think that the funny thing is, I know you're like, I don't want to give you something prescriptive to talk about likability because you could abuse this, and it's funny because I realize a lot. <laughs> that I talk to they teach you things you know we had Chris Voss who is an FBI hostage negotiator here and he's like he's like like anything else what I'm teaching you here can be used for good or evil. Yeah. Uh so I wonder if, like if you were to actually give prescriptive advice I mean you've kind of said okay self-awareness uh listening what else is in that list of increasing your likability? And where was that point at which you kind of realized okay wait a minute like this is all an act. I know how to increase my likability but I'm not really being real. For you what was that moment?
1: Yeah. So so the weird thing that actually qualifies me to answer this is being a woman. Like, I think that we are we are conditioned by society to learn to be likable um, mm. and punished when we're not. So, and, and I don't even think I did a lot of it totally consciously, but like smiling, being agreeable, um, laughing, finding someone smart or funny, letting them teach you something, um, acting a little dumber than you are. Um, figuring out what the, what's in the zeitgeist and and making, you know, small comments about that. Um, I think that for me, it was a lot of ways of like muting my personality. um, Mm -hmm. And that's why it didn't fit that. Like my personality is inherently disagreeable for certain types (laughs) and um, inherently like a hell yes for another type, which ironically is the best marketing lesson of all. Like these are all sales and marketing tools too, because you don't want to be just liked by everyone. Like you want to be like hella loved. Like, yes, yeah. I'm a diehard fan or disliked. Like you, if you have just this group that's like lukewarm in the middle, it actually doesn't get you anywhere. Um, yeah. So what I found was um, like part of what what I didn't like about those prescriptive tools and what I was doing is that it made me show up as like this phony person. Like I would find myself being like, I'm smarter than this. I didn't actually have that question. I had a different question. Or I I would find myself like, messing with the tone of how I said something for fear of offending someone and not actually saying what I mean and, and being overly nice or overly apologetic or overly smiley when I didn't want to smile. Um, and so it, it like, if anything, the way I'm describing it probably sounds like a really annoying person. And maybe, (laughs) maybe that's also true that like people that are likable, um, are also a little bit blendy. And I think that's, that's inherently the problem. And, and that's when I look back at like, the social hierarchies of high school, for example, that is uh-huh. that is the ultimate goal. Like you want to blend in. I wanted to blend in. I didn't want to stand out, and it took me actually blending in to be like, oh fuck this noise. Like I want to stand out. Like this is boring. Like what I, I all this work to get to the top, and now I'm like, wait a minute. These conversations are terrible. Like you know, it, it took a really long time. It, college was the first time that I met people who were smart and cool. I had never, yeah. I had never experienced that before, so that was really, really something new for me. And like, you have to see different versions of what works um, right. in order to even believe that that, that exists. But yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's interesting because I mean, the entire ethos of the unmistakable brand is about standing out in the world. You know, like literally, that is the foundation on which we make every decision. Is does this stand out in some way, or is this distinctive? uh, which I think makes really kind of a, a perfect segue to talk about this idea of getting you know, people to care. But before we get there, I, I do want to mention something else. You, know, you were talking about the, the idea, you know, being likable and blending. Justine <laughs> Musk once said to me in a conversation that if you have a bold and compelling point of view, you're going to piss people off. Yes. And I never forgot that. And it was funny because I had a, a listener who heard something a guest said. Uh, by the time you guys are listening to this, you will have heard this. Um, and he was talking about his infidelity. And she basically said, You devalue your female listeners by airing that and not editing it out. Mm. And, you know, I, I said, Look, I don't necessarily agree with everybody's viewpoints when I interview them, um, but I'm not going to censor somebody yeah. because that's just not what we do here. And to me, I'm like, I'd rather lose the listener than censor our, censor what we do. Yeah. And it was such a sort of interesting moment. So I, I wonder, right? So, you know, and this is why I wanted to ask that, you know, preface this with that does that play a role in getting somebody to care? Like if you're vanilla and you blend in, do people just not give a shit?
1: Um, well, if you're attracted, if you want to get the buy-in of vanilla people, um, I, I think like who you're trying to get to care is a big part of this conversation. So like mm. we could make the argument that I was chasing approval from the wrong people. Well, first of all, yeah. approval chasing in general is going to get you nowhere fast. Um, but, uh, because like, it's one of those things that when you chase it, you de facto erode the value of it. Like you're uh-huh. chasing the wrong thing. It's a thing that comes as a consequence of other things. So your original quote, I forget what it was, but like, people aren't going to like you when you stand for something. And that's part of the beauty of it. When you put a stake in the ground and when you decide to have an opinion, um, it's going to piss people off. That, that is how rebellions start. There's a great... Um, keynote I saw by Malcolm Gladwell a few years ago at Inbound, and I remember he was going off on how it's so unfair that we make rebe- like rebels cool in pop culture because mm-hmm. the disposition of an actual rebel is to be like is disagreeableness. So like mm-hmm. when you're a real rebel, women don't want to sleep with you. Like it, you're not <laughs> you're not like the coolest person at the party. It's it's the opposite of that actually if for people who are making change in the world. And uh-huh. I loved that because I think that that, that is such a more accurate way to think about this, that like you have to know who you are for this to work and yeah. for you to know what your boundaries are. We just did a ham episode on this. Um, sorry that I, I have an internet talk show called Hillary and Margot yell at websites and okay. uh- <laughs> ham for short. And yeah. one of the questions we get asked a lot is like, how do you be yourself in your brand? And I remember yeah. um, a a student of mine was asking me, like, would you sh- like, would you show clients hamya? Like, would that really ruin your relationship? And I was thinking about. It. I was like, of course, like this is who I am. Like, Google me, you will see my opinions on things. Like, it is very clear. But I thought about who I was earlier in my career, and the answer is no. Like, I would have been afraid to curse, and I would have been afraid um, to actually have an opinion on my professional anything, um, and you You have to recognize that when you, you are yourself in public, that there mm. are consequences that are both positive and negative, so for example, my choice to swear um well, first of all, I should have asked you permission because this is your podcast, but <laughs> on my own platforms, um, yeah. the reason I don't censor myself even though pretty much every time I send an email, my mother's like, "I really wish you wouldn't swear so much." Um, oh, yeah. I, I also recognize that I get emails from readers who are immediately like, yes, fuck yes, thank you for saying it, because this is the way they needed to hear it. Right. And when I double down on that, and like, that's okay, like, I'm okay with drawing that line. And I recognize that that's going to turn people off. But for me, the people that that turns off are the people I don't want on my list. Yeah. And so that's very different from me saying something that offends someone that I actually care about. And that's where the line is. So, like the same thing with the cheating story. It's like if this is if like you're not okay with me having a conversation where I let someone be themselves, then okay, like I'm sorry. We agree to disagree, Um, and you have to stand by rules. And then there's sometimes where you literally have to do a mea culpa. Like there have been times where I um, I'm thinking of like an Instagram story that I thought was really funny, and I know um, I inadvertently shamed some people. And they were like kind of talking shit behind my back. And I remember gut checking with a friend of mine being like, wait, like these people were kind of assholes. So like they deserve this. And then she was like, no, no, this was like you actually not practicing your moral stance and you were being a schmuck and you should apologize. I was like, yeah. oh, okay, that's true. That's true. I was an idiot. Um And so like you, you also have to discover your lines sometimes by, by, by violating right. them. <laughs>
2: Well, I had a similar experience. Um, Elizabeth DiAlto, who uh, probably people who are listening to this know, had me on her podcast, and we did. Her opening question is, "What do you like most about being a man?" Which is a loaded question, Oof. as it is, like especially if you're not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, I give her this first answer, and you know, we record the interview, and and two of my business partners are here, and they're like, "Tell us how you said it exactly." And they're like, "We don't believe you. Play it back for us." they were like, this is a PR crisis in the making. You need to have her get this out of this interview or redo it. And we had to because it was like one of those things where it was just like, you're right. This is a PR crisis in the making.
1: Oh, no. Yeah. But, but that's, I mean, we're all human. And yeah. this, this is how we learn. This is how we iterate. And, and that's the other thing that's the problem with approval seeking is like, that's the kind of thing, <coughs> excuse me, if you put that out, you attract the wrong people. Because it's not an accurate portrayal of what you're trying to say, and so you yeah. don't you don't want those people's approval. <laughs> no.
2: So what's interesting, right, is we're talking about getting people to care, and at the same time, there's this sort of coexistence with um, not wanting to seek approval. So how do you balance those two things? Uh, it, what's interesting to me is I think that it, it's really hard to go through life without seeing validation from anybody because we, and we do it. You know, if you're raised in families like you know, it sounds like you were and I was where, you know, we're constantly validated for accolades and achievements. And, you know, in so many ways, we've just, you know, replaced that version of validation, uh, with validation from strangers on the internet.
1: Totally. Um, so it starts with who is it for? The Mm. question is, uh, validation from which people. So often we are seeking validation from like, we started this with the vanilla people or the cool kids, or we're chasing the wrong people. When you find your tribe, like in this case, you seeking validation from your listeners would be the right people to be seeking it from. If you were seeking validation no. from your mom about your podcast, I would say you're barking up the wrong tree. I mm. don't even know your mom. But <laughs> that's that's how I would think about it, is that like we have to have sort of a product market fit there with how we think about, validation and pleasing um but i would actually call it adding value so like
5: mm.
1: um thinking about it as a val- validation more as um green light indicators that you're on the right track so validation gets sticky when it becomes a personal attribution When you start thinking like oh i need this because it makes me feel good about myself and this is what i'm basing my self-esteem on that's dangerous and that's very bad Because you need to have an inherent sense of self-worth. But if you're like, you know what? I'm going to test a few things out with my podcast. I'm going to try some different styles. And then I'm going to throw it out and see what people like or don't like. That is a validation that's helpful. Because they're the listeners and they actually are the arbiters of that. Yeah. Does that make
2: sense? Interesting. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. So I, I think that th- this is interesting, particularly because I just wrote a book called Audience of One, which is about reclaiming creativity yes. for own sake and letting go of expectations and yes. letting go of this need for, for validation from an audience. In fact, I think I do some of my best creative work when I am actually not thinking about how do I get validated from an audience? So how do you, how do you deal with that juxtaposition?
1: Yes, okay. This is my favorite. Let's, let's divide creativity from marketing and like okay. sales and things that need results. So you are 1,000 bajillion, quadrillion percent correct when we are talking about producing quality work. When we are talking about producing something that gets sales, mm-hmm. then we have to start caring a little bit. Right. Um, and, and and a little bit is within reason, right? Because if you care too much, you start being like season four of Empire where you just start sucking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where it's like no one wants to see that because um, you're you're pandering too much to those um, to like market research blind tests, you know, um, and that's not helpful either because there reaches a point where it's that uh, Ford saying, what is it like if you ask the people what they wanted, they would have told you a faster horse. You know, so that's, yeah. that's sometimes true. But it's also true that like you have to test things that's against the market. Um, uh-huh. But th- that's when we're talking about sales. So, if we're talking about um, I am writing a book and it needs to it needs to be sold, then yeah, it does matter that you get validation from the market. But if you're writing a book because you want it to be a good fucking book, then like one, o- it only needs to impact one person, and that person is you. No. Game over.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting. I think uh, I don't remember who it was. It was either Kamal Ravi or Seth Godin who said the book that will change your life the most is the one that you write.
0: Hmm,
1: that sounds like so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah wow. I, and I completely agree. I completely so, agree.
2: Go ahead. What is it that causes people not to care? Because I think that, so, you know, think about this in terms of, you know, the right people, all of this, right? And then in the midst of this, you're trying to figure out how to stand out in a sea of noise. I mean, think about how much is competing for anybody's attention on any given day. Uh, whether it's, you know, on the iTunes store for podcasts, whether it's on Facebook and the newsfeed, So what is it that causes people not to care?
0: Yeah,
1: there's a great um, slide I'm remembering from my behavioral economics class called the forces of apathy. And it is literally everything describing climate change, <laughs> like, <laughs> using, um, like distance from the problem. Feeling like it's not relevant to you, um, using statistics instead of stories. Uh, you know, th- there's a lot of things you can do to turn people off, but I, let's start here. Um, in order to talk about why someone cares or doesn't care, we have to understand desire and the mechanics of desire. And we are all walking around with things that we want. Uh, and those things are not a Prada bag. Those things are our fears, hopes, and dreams. We want to be liked. We want to belong. We want approval from our dad. um, We want that person to look at us. We want a raise. We want to be able to support our family. We want to not have cancer. Um, There are certain forces that are bigger than us that are sort of implanted inside of us. And we're all walking around with our own sort of set of them. And those things get sort of transposed into the actions and products that we interact with. So all of our behavior is driven in many ways by those desires. And this is why I tell people like, you don't buy what you need, you buy what you want. And as soon as you understand that difference, it's really important. So uh, because we, we pretty much have what we need. Like even if you're arguing like, oh, well, no, I bought a screw for the wall because I needed one. Um, we could, you could already, you could go all the way back. They're like, no, it's because you wanted a house and you wanted to put a frame on there for a memory that may, you know, all of it is wants that are driving these decisions. And so, um, the, the more interesting thing is how do you turn those desires, those wants into action? So whether that is a purchase behavior, whether that is asking someone out, whether that is donating to a cause, um, whether that is publishing publish on your blog post, um, all of that comes from from your desires. Um, and so to, what makes someone not care about something? Uh, I don't think that there's a switch that actually turns them off. I think they are inherently not caring about it already. Just like there's nothing that happened that made me not care about cars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I simply, someone put a card in front of me and I was like, this is boring. And I moved on with my life and I didn't think about it again.
2: <laughs> Interesting. So one of the things I, I wonder, and just based on having talked to you, I, you, know, I'm assuming that you've either read one or all of Robert Greene's books.
1: <laughs> I actually haven't. And I. it's funny, everyone thinks I've read the 48 Laws of Power. It's on my queue. I am familiar okay. with the principles, don't worry.
2: Okay, so the, the, the reason I brought it up is that You know, I I read Robert Greene's books, Um, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, one of my friends is like, when we saw laws of human nature, he's like, this is almost redemption for how manipulative the idea (laughs) in the previous books were. Like, if you were, I I remember I was on Creative Live with Chase Jarvis and, you know, we we were talking about, uh, you know, my new book and we're talking about the fact that I underline and highlight books. And I said, you know, there are only two books on my shelf. I'm absolutely terrified that uh, somebody I'm dating will pick up. And it's the 48 laws of power and the art of seduction. They're going to be like, wow, you're a fucking sociopath. Uh so I wonder, you know, given what you know about all this, like what what do you make of of what is in those books? Because yeah. it's not like there isn't truth to what he's saying. Yeah. Uh we've all seen it play out in our own lives. Like we've seen, you know, the things of of like, you know, the the more available you are, the less desirable you are. Like yeah. you've seen that. Like the the you know, scarcity makes something much more valuable. Um, and yet on a certain level, you're like, okay, is this manipulative or is this just taking advantage of the human psyche. Like, so I wonder just from your perspective, knowing what you do about that, just from sort of the periphery, like, how do you, how do you make sense? Yes.
1: And that? I would argue, I would add, um, holidays book, um, confessions oh. of a media manipulator and Cialdini's right. influence to that list. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I write a lot about this. Uh, I argue that manipulation doesn't have to be bad. And Hmm. that we can use these tools for good. And that's actually why I started on this rampage in the first place. I felt like um, there is such thing as ethical manipulation. Um, And not only should we use these, we absolutely must. So for example, if your dentist used scarcity and urgency a little bit more, we would have a lot less cavities. (laughs) And no one's going to argue that that was uh, exploitive, but it is yeah. it totally is so um you know where where the line is drawn for me is the end goal number 1 Thank like you. is this truly nefarious and that's where we can have an interesting you know ethical discussion but i think a cleaner goal is on the question of lying so for marketing i see persuasion levers as tools tools mm-hmm. that can help you add value so If we agree, and now this is a big assumption, that business and marketing and sales are the matchmaking between a problem people have and the solution you provide, then pulling persuasion lovers are actually a really useful tool to get people to take action because our baseline is that we're lazy and we don't care, which we've already established. And so if that's your baseline, I have to do something to make you move because we already know that humans don't act in their own best interest. So let's like start there. Where it gets unethical is in the conversation around claims. If you are promising something that you are not, if you are using a testimonial that is not true, like I had a client that actually did this where they showed me a sales page that I had written and, um, mm-hmm. it was, it was live a few months after I stopped working with them and they sent it to me and they're like, look how great this is. And I saw that all of the stock testimonials that I had written that were supposed mm-hmm. to be replaced with real interviews, never got replaced. Like even the pictures that I took from Google docs, I'm sorry, like Google images were there. And I was like, dude, like, no, like, I can't believe I have to explain this to you. Like not okay. And he's like, Oh no, no, they're just there for a little bit. We just are getting them together. And I'm like, you're a fucking liar. Like that is not okay. This is the line crossed. Not okay. Um, like these, the, the promises need to be true and the claims need to be true. And I think if those things are true, then the persuasion levers are okay. Now, you should never be pushing someone into making a decision, um, yeah. but I, I would actually argue that a lot of that doesn't work anymore, in part because uh, of what of, um, oh, I forget what it's called, but Dan, what's his name, wrote about it in, in uh, his book on sales.
2: Uh, uh, Dan Kennedy? Uh,
1: no, not Dan Kennedy. That's funny. Dan, um, oh my God, why am I blanking on his name? Pink. Um to sell as human. Yeah. Yeah. Um about how we we the economy has shifted, so it's a buyer's economy. And that's why the the push um selling doesn't work as much. So people aren't as malleable. Um mm-hmm. but uh but there 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 is an opportunity. You will turn people off at a certain point, I guess is what I'm saying. Um and yeah. I think you know when you're being a schmuck. I think that's true too. Right, like right. I think people actively are are pushing and lying, but if your if your promise is a lie, and if your claims are untrue or a uh, stretch of the truth, that's when it's a problem. Using the persuasion levers to entice people to take action is not the problem. Yeah,
2: well, it's funny because it, it never—it it sounds almost like a, such a, a, a odd contradiction, ethical manipulation. But I love it, right? Because I was thinking about this mm-hmm. the other day. I was writing this piece about how do you make a living as an artist, or how do you make a living as a creative? Yes, and. You know, I said, nobody apologizes for collecting a paycheck for their day job. Yet when an artist, you know, asks somebody to buy their work or, you know, attempts to sell something to their audience, they have this like tremendous sense of guilt about it. And I was like, wow, you know, that to me was one of those moments where mm-hmm. you, you have to basically be willing to say, you know what, we're running a business, not a charity. So if that turns somebody mm-hmm. off, then have them send you money for rent.
1: <laughs> I love that. it's so, but you know, part of the problem is because it's so personal and this, mm-hmm. this is why it's such an interesting conversation. It's a lot easier to be objective about a business that's selling widgets. Um, yeah. It's a lot harder when the widgets are literally your life's work.
2: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I also think I, I really appreciate what you said about you know claims and promises because we're we're opening up a, a writer's workshop, a two day intensive, and we're, I remember sitting out with a copywriter, and you know he kind of said, "Okay, list down all the accolades, like book deals, publishers," and I said, "Just to be clear." we're not promising any of those things to anybody because we can't control that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, there's no way I would make a commitment to somebody and say, Hey, I can get you a book deal with a publisher. Yep. You know, I was like, th- that would just be completely dishonest. Yep. Uh, but yeah,
1: that is correct. And that's why a lot of the people who make those claims also report their revenue earnings, but don't report their refund rates. Like mm. this is what drives me nuts about the copywriters in my world. Cause that, I mean, their numbers are faulty. Like only listen to people who tell you profit. Okay. You guys,
2: No. Well, so that there is a whole other interesting question, right? Is, you know, because of the fact that the barrier to entry is so low for so many different things, you know, it like people become life coaches. And, you know, I have always thought, okay, let me get this straight. Your life is a mess. So you're going to go tell other people how to fix theirs like <laughs> that's how you're going to be living that doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense to yeah. me and you know look we've had plenty of people who probably fo- fall into the life coach category here on the show as guests and i remember i was talking to kate Soboda about this and she said i know you're feeling srini on life coaches and i want to talk to them she said some of your criticism is is warranted because there are a lot of people who are doing work that in all honesty they're not qualified to do yeah um you know, things that should be actually handled by licensed professionals are being handled by life coaches and you, from having this perspective, I wonder when you see that, like what is your view on that?
1: Uh, I have a really strong line in the stand here um, and i and I cross into both words, so I'll tell you why because on one level, I have um my own struggle with credentials being that I was in the academic world mm. and I really respect the people in that world and what you have to go through to get the licensing and the degrees. Um, and I also felt very lesser than as a result. And so I had a hard time being loud because I was constantly judging myself on my lack of credentials. Um, on the flip side, um, I also see people where I'm like, it's it's freaking digital marketing. Of course you can call yourself an expert. There is like, look at your results, judge yourself by your results. So there's like kind of two sides of this. And the same thing with writing, it took me years to accept that I was a writer and that I could teach writing without a PhD in it. I also do a writing workshop. So I was like, I mean, years really until people were begging for it where I was like, okay, maybe I actually should. Um, and, (laughs) and this is where, uh, to me the line in the sand. And I, so I'll give you a little backstory on this. I, um, wrote something called to the man in the depression study. Um it was one of my pieces on medium about my experience with uh authenticity and some of the problems I see in the world of psychology and psychiatry. Um and some of the the real systemic issues we have there and how sorry, I disagreed with them. And people took this as a rally cry for why like there is no authority in psychology and psychiatry and um, like, it, and I, I, I published another piece that was like, hold up in defense of credentials. Like, let's talk about the real experts here because I am not telling anyone not to go talk to their therapist. I actually really believe in therapy and like in any, like any field, um, there are bad ones, you know, in the same way that like, I'm embarrassed to call myself a marketer sometimes because there are bad ones of us too. And so, um, we ha- let, let's draw the line between you had a bad experience with a bad therapist and very good criticisms that need to be talked about to make something better about a industry that can improve. Uh, and, and so the line for me with that is if we are talking about people's livelihoods, if we are talking about any, any area that requires licensing, like your physical health, your mental health. Uh, the law, (laughs) um, you know, things that you can't really self-teach and you probably shouldn't because part of what goes into the learnings is years of studying under people who mentor you and tell you things that you can't find in textbooks and that experience that changes your eyes, you know, uh, uh, like writing is a little bit different because the results are right there. Um you know doing surgery you can't say that was good or bad right there um it, it, the the consequences are different and we're not comparing apples to apples but sometimes it feels yeah. that way so i i don't discount that i think that credentials are really important i think um you know life coaching actually unfortunately has a pr problem i think it's really really wonderful if we just called it career coaching um yeah. and then it could be beautiful and helpful and empowering to people um, the second you start telling people prescriptively how to live their life, which by the way is not what therapy is, um, then we have problems and it gets dangerous, mm. very dangerous. That's where it gets yeah. irresponsible.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, you know, we, have, uh, at moments at, at times, I wonder if like, you know, the work that, you know, people like you and I do it in platforms like ours perpetuates this because we have a lot of these people yeah. coming and sharing their messages. and, and at times I'm like, okay. I have to think about that often. I'm like, okay, what part, am I, what, what part am I doing? Like, I've had people email me to tell me they stopped listening to the show because they felt their lives sucked after listening to somebody yeah, because like, you know, the person was so accomplished or impressive. And I was like, okay. So, like, interesting. Like, on, on the one <laughs> yeah. hand, people are, are finding this to be really valuable. On the flip side, like, you know, we're perpetuating a mantra that isn't necessarily helpful for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. I struggle with this too. At a certain point, um, you, you can't always control what people are going to get from your work, but you can control the message you put out. Um, mm-hmm. I think there are two sides of that coin and it's a thin line between them. And so I, I make certain lines for myself. So I have friends that I actually won't even like mention publicly or partner with because I love them as my friend, but I don't believe in their brand. I don't always yeah. believe that they believe their message. I think they're working through their own stuff and I wish them well. Um, also, it's a funny phrase, working through your own stuff, because we're kind of all working through stuff like at every stage of life. But I think you guys know what I mean by that. Um, yeah. But the point is, like, you have to know where your line is and decide. Because if, if, it's kind of like if I, I wrote something and it offends someone, I have to pause and go, did what I write, was that actually offensive? Like, th- This is the importance of actually having a tribe of people who are on your level or higher. Um, that will give you very real feedback and not praise or criticism, just feedback and that can check you and say, Mm. like, actually, you shouldn't have had that guy on. He was boastful and it was annoying. And you have a lot of people on who seem to pretend that they never had any struggle. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a fair critic. Like, that's helpful. Um, and it could be that you just want that. You want that because that makes you feel good and you make a creative decision that that's what you're going to do. Um, on the flip side, you might say, like, oh, you know what? I am going to, I'm going to try and have more people like XYZ um, that share more struggle, that talk more about the hard parts. Because you know, you could also be doing that. You're going to get criticism too. People are going to feel too depressed about hearing like the bad stories and they want to hear the good ones. So you can't win when you start playing that game. But you definitely can hold yourself accountable to what you want the value to be for your readers, the best of your ability.
2: Wow. I feel like I could talk to you for like three hours. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Given you know, how much ground we've covered. Uh, but you know this has just been fascinating. Uh, I'm so glad Sarah referred uh, you to me. Like, I, I feel like I, I've forgotten so many of the questions that I want to ask you. My guess is at some point, we'll probably have to have you back for round two. Uh, Amen. So um, I want to finish with uh, my final question, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Honestly, this is going to sound so cheesy. I was thinking about this before we got on and I was like, I'm going to say it anyway. I think it's when you're you. Like when someone is truly themselves, you feel that whether they're weird, whether they're quiet, whether they're loud, like when they can stand in who they are, you notice and you remember. And that speaks to the right audience. It makes them unmistakable to the right people. And that matters more because I think you can be unmistakable, like in a bad way where you're like the kid that drank too much at the party. You don't want to uh-huh. be that level of unmistakable. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be the genuine kind.
2: Awesome. Wow. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for joining us and sharing your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and uh, everything that you're up to?
1: Yes. Come check me out. That is sort of home base for all of my writing get on my email list. That's where I share all the good stuff. Um, You can also come say hi to me on Instagram and Twitter at Margot Aaron.
2: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
4: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.